Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you've got a thirst for knowledge that never quits, Brightside podcasts are just what you need. Whether you're into recent discoveries, space exploration, true stories, or useful tips for self-improvement, psychology, gadgets, or just your day-to-day routine, there's something for everyone. December 19th, 796 CE. People around the world look at the night sky in dismay, eyes wide with anxiety. The moon up above is blood red and huge, as big as they've ever seen in their lives, and will never see again. For this was the closest the moon had ever come to Earth, until 1,100 years later. On January 4, 1912, people of Earth witnessed a very similar event, an enormous red moon in the night sky. At the time, it was already known the supermoon was just a natural phenomenon, but still, it might have turned out a bad omen for the Titanic which set sail three months later, never to reach its destination. The moon heavily affects tides on Earth. Without our natural satellite, there would be no tidal motions on the planet, and most likely, life wouldn't have appeared at all. The closer the moon is to Earth, the stronger the tides are because of the increasing gravity of the satellite. Back in 1912, the moon was so close it caused a heavy commotion in many parts of the world, and even made several glaciers in Greenland break apart. Massive chunks of ice that broke off from the glaciers started floating south, carried by the ocean currents. They were slow and menacing, threatening lots of ship routes along their way. But the worst thing was that they weren't alone. The supermoon event came just six minutes after a spring tide, the alignment of the moon, the sun, and earth that makes their combined gravity reach its peak twice a month. And the day before, our planet had come the closest to the sun that year, which made the gravity even stronger. This mixture of events created perfect conditions for one of the most powerful tides in history. Icebergs breaking off from Greenland's glaciers tend to drift off to the coastal waters of Labrador and Newfoundland, where they often run aground. To move on, they need to either melt and become lighter or catch a high tide that would carry them further. And the 1912's tide was as high as it gets. Many shipping routes were shifted southwards because of an abnormal amount of icebergs that moved from the north within the following months, but not the Titanic, which was dubbed unsinkable. The great steamer plowed the Atlantic quickly and surely until it met its gruesome fate on April 14th. The abundance of ice in the North Atlantic, though, wasn't such a rare occasion, so it couldn't be the only reason for the crash. Researchers have proven that the Titanic had received several warnings of solitary icebergs and even ice fields from other ships. For example, at 9.40 p.m., the Misaba, 
a liner passing by not far away signaled the Titanic about an ice field on its way. Although it was mandatory, the message was never relayed to the bridge. The wireless radio operators on board the ship were busy with passenger messages. Same thing happened when the Californian, roughly 20 nautical miles away at the time, sent another ice field warning. The Titanic's radio operator even scolded the Californian for interrupting him. In the meantime, it was dark outside, and the ocean was unusually calm. The almost flat surface of the water made it harder for the Titanic's lookouts to see icebergs up ahead. When waves crash against an iceberg, their crests are clearly seen against the darker surrounding waters. But when the sea is calm, there's nothing to crash. What made the situation even worse, the binoculars were locked in a safe, and the key had been left on shore by accident. So when the lookouts finally noticed the fateful ice rock, it was already too late. One more obscure detail was that the iceberg might have actually been what's called a blackberg. If you have had to draw an iceberg, I bet it would be a white, towering chunk of ice covered with snow. But those who have visited Antarctica know that icebergs come in millions of hues. They can be multicolored, patterned, striped, or black. The ice a berg is made of might be extremely pure, with no air bubbles or cracks. In this case, there's nothing to scatter the light. The iceberg will absorb it all and look black. Or an erupting volcano can cover a glacier with volcanic ash. Then the iceberg that breaks off this glacier will be dark colored too. Smooth and pure blackbergs form when an iceberg rolls over after its top has melted, changing the weight distribution. The water underneath smooths down the ice, and there's no air there to form frost on it, so the new top absorbs the light and looks dark. Researchers are pretty sure that the actions of the crew that followed were blundering too. First of all, the Titanic's first officer ordered a so-called porting maneuver at the site of the iceberg, but also told the crew to reverse the engines. The maneuver was to turn the ship first right and then sharp left to swing the hull about and avoid the worst. If the crew hadn't done that, the iceberg could have torn through the whole starboard or right side of the Titanic, making it capsize and sink in a matter of minutes. But the reverse engine's order was likely a mistake. Many experts agree that a head-on collision with the iceberg at full speed would have lessened the damage to the ship because the Titanic's bow was much sturdier than its sides. And even if it had been torn through, fewer watertight compartments would have been damaged and flooded, and the ship would have stayed afloat. The speed should have dropped much earlier, when first warnings of ice fields had been received. At half the speed, the Titanic's lookouts could have noticed the iceberg from a bigger distance and warned the officers much earlier. And that would have allowed to maneuver away from danger way in advance. You could say the Titanic should have just used brakes and stopped entirely instead of maneuvering. But the thing is, ships don't have brakes. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. In a car, brake pads tightly grip wheels' rotors and cause a lot of friction basically restricting them from moving at all. And if wheels stop, they cause friction with the road. And more friction means less speed until the car eventually stops. It doesn't work like this with water though. Ships usually move either with the help of a jet stream of water shot from a nozzle or by utilizing propellers. If you just stop the stream or propeller, it won't be enough to halt the ship. 
the power of inertia will take it far ahead before it finally stops. That's why reversing the engines is the best strategy there is. The stream or propeller will work in the opposite direction, bringing the vessel to a halt. If not stopped, then of course, it will continue pushing it backwards. Another problem though, is that ships, especially such large ones as the Titanic, are a lot heavier than any car or even a truck. The more massive an object is, the harder it is to make it stop. So even if the Titanic had been a land vehicle equipped with wheels, halting it completely would have taken minutes. That's also why, for example, trains can't stop entirely in seconds. They're too heavy, and the inertia of the cars behind the locomotive would throw them off the tracks, resulting in a disaster. When the Titanic sent out a distress signal, several ships received it and replied, but they were all too far away. The closest one turned out to be the Carpathia, but it took three hours to reach the sinking steamship and rescue the surviving passengers on lifeboats. But another ship had been much closer to the crash site and could have been there in an hour, and yet it didn't arrive at all. It was the Californian, the same liner that had earlier warned the Titanic of an ice field. The Californian's wireless radio had been turned off for the night, so the crew couldn't hear the distress call. But soon, the Titanic started shooting up signal rockets, and there was no chance the Californian 20 miles away didn't see them. Later at the court, the crew would testify that they did see the rockets, but they also saw a vessel about half the distance to the Titanic and thought it was the ship sending distress signals. They tried to contact it using a signal lamp, but the ship didn't reply. When the rockets went up, the crew of the Californian woke up the captain, but he ordered to continue sending light signals instead of turning on the radio. In the end, this decision might have been fateful for the Titanic. Records show no other ships that close to the Titanic that night, but the Californian's crew were unanimous in that they'd seen some vessel. What's more, some passengers of the Titanic also claimed to have seen a ship heading towards them, though it never reached the sinking steamer. Some were even willing to believe it was a ghost ship, but the truth was likely much simpler. It must have been a poaching boat. Then, it would have made sense for it to keep a low profile. And of course, no records would have existed about it. Another possible cause of the crash was a mirage strip, a phenomenon known since the times of the Vikings, but that only came to the public attention in early 2021. Mirage strips appear on clear and calm waters when cold air just above the surface is overlaid by warmer currents. Light travels through these layers in an abnormal way refracting unusually, and creates a false horizon. Thanks to that, you can sometimes see ships flying high above the water in the distance. While this is simply curious when you're on land, it can cause navigational errors in the sea. This phenomenon is most frequent in Arctic regions in spring, and that was exactly the place and time of the Titanic's fateful voyage. Again, the night of the crash was calm and clear. There was no moon, and the lookouts had a hard enough time making up their surroundings as it was. But the mixing air of different temperatures created a band of haze that played with their eyes and made visibility even worse. They couldn't tell the surface of the sea from the night sky, and icebergs also stayed hidden for far too long. Because of the calm conditions, the senior officers ordered the Titanic to go at almost full speed, despite several warnings of ice fields around and ahead. If it had been going slower, the lookouts might have noticed the iceberg early enough to avoid it. But as it was, when the berg finally showed itself from the haze, it was already too late to go around it. The Mirage Strip might also explain the Californian's lack of action I mentioned earlier. The false horizon might have made the Californian's lookouts take the huge Titanic for a much smaller ship and a lot closer than it actually was. 
The crew didn't recognize the vessel and tried to contact it with the signal lamp. And when the rockets went up, the same haze made them look very low above the horizon. This caused a lot of confusion aboard the California, and the crew just didn't know what to do. The remains of the Titanic are still lying deep down at the bottom of the North Atlantic. Suggestions to raise the ship, broken into two distinct parts, were made days after the crash, but the technology wasn't advanced enough until the second half of the 20th century. The first footage of the Titanic's wreck was made on September 1, 1985, when the Argo, a 16-foot submersible sled, traveled about 13,000 feet down and discovered the Titanic's boilers. Later expeditions recovered small parts of the ship and even a large section of its hull. Scientists who inspected the findings came to the conclusion that the actual reason for the Titanic sinking might have been not so much the collision with the iceberg as the weakness of its construction. There was no huge gash on the ship's hull, as it had been first thought. Instead, there were a series of smaller and thinner gashes along the hull, as well as separate seams. This led the researchers to believe low-quality steel or weak rivets were used in the production of this liner. Well into the second half of the 20th century, numerous ideas as to how to raise the Titanic from the ocean bottom appeared. Among the most popular ones was lifting the ship with compressed air. There was even a book written about it, as if it had happened in reality. But no such attempt was actually made. To do this, you'd need several hundred large cylinders of compressed air. Since air is lighter than water, the cylinders would float to the surface, theoretically dragging the sunken ship with them. But the problems start as soon as you lower the cylinders under the water. They immediately float upwards. You need to fasten the cylinders with cables and take them down to the bottom using a powerful submarine. And since there are literal hundreds of those containers, you'd likely need several dozens of such vessels. Multiple trips of a single submarine would also work. But there's an issue of leaving the cylinders at the bottom. You need to anchor them so that they wouldn't float up while you're going back and forth, bringing the rest of the batch. Also, the pressure down at the bottom is very high, so the cylinders might burst in the end. The blast wave from one burst would likely damage the rest of the containers, which would result in one giant boom. The risk of this is higher the more time passes, so the operation should be as swift as possible. Another suggested way to raise the mighty liner was to wrap it in wire mesh and cover that with liquid nitrogen. The reasoning was that the ice would float up, just as the pressurized air in the previous option, taking the ship with it to the surface. This idea was rejected because wrapping the entire ship had proven impossible. You'd need to somehow lift the Titanic a little to line the mesh underneath, but even if that was possible by some miracle, hundreds of large tanks of liquid nitrogen would have to be transported and released around the wreck next. But the freezing substance works differently when underwater and on the surface. When there's too much water around, Opening the tanks would just make it bubble like crazy and look as if it's boiling. Liquid nitrogen would sizzle and dissipate without a trace, leaving you with tons of useless wire mesh and wasted effort. What about giant magnets then? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. A large cruiser equipped with several huge magnetic plates would approach the wreck's coordinates. First, you would attach thick and very long cables to the magnets. Even the weight of the equipment alone would be tremendous, but let's assume it's possible. 
you lower the magnets to the bottom of the ocean. They go down and down until they stick to the steel hull of the ship. The cruiser receives the signal and pulls. And the first thing that happens is one of the magnets unclinging from the hull because the wreck has been overgrown with corals and moss. Then, parts of the Titanic would break away from the wreck and start rising. At this point, the mission would already be failed. You wanted to raise the whole ship, right? But even so, the combined weight of the Titanic's parts and the colossal water pressure would mess with the whole operation. Only several parts would rise to the surface, and that's not acceptable. The most expensive and complex plan to raise the Titanic was probably the one that involved extracting hydrogen and oxygen from the ocean water. Then they would go to special containers, which would be attached to the ship, and rise to the surface with the Titanic in tow. The only problem with this plan is that you can't just put the Titanic in vacuum until the deed is done. While the water around and inside the ship is being filtered, the rest of the ocean just fills up the vacated space, so the process is futile to begin with. And even if it somehow wasn't, a machine capable of such filtering would cost billions of dollars. The only way to fulfill this goal is to filter and purify the entire ocean, which is, of course, impossible. Maybe a giant construction hook would do the thing. Imagine the most powerful tow ship in the world, being equipped with a hook big enough to lift a 52,000-ton liner from the ocean depths. The first flaw of this plan is that such a hook itself would weigh about 10,000 tons, adding to the already enormous weight of the Titanic. Secondly, it would need a chain or cable to match its size, which would have to be at least 13,000 feet long to reach the ship. Then, this entire mass would go down to the bottom and somehow hook the Titanic, but only one of its parts, because the ship had broken into two. And finally, even if you manage all that, the pressure and resistance of the water, as well as the strain on the deteriorated ship, would simply make the wreck crumble into pieces. At some point, the hook section would break off, sending the lifted part tumbling back into the abyss. There was also a suggestion to blow the Titanic apart so that its remains were easier to lift. But that idea was rejected immediately, as the researchers saw reason only in raising it in its entirety, not in pieces. It would just lose its scientific and historical value that way. Among the more fantastical ways to do that was the idea to use barrels of hot wax. The principle was the same as with the compressed air. The wax would solidify and raise to the surface, dragging the sunken ship upwards. But the sad truth was that even if the barrels were successfully delivered to the ship and unsealed, the wax would solidify in an instant. There would be no time for it to spread and cover the entirety of the Titanic. Everything you'd see on the surface would be hundreds of barrel-shaped lumps of solid wax. Same goes for ping-pong balls. Filled with air, they'd rise to the surface okay, but not under the enormous pressure at the bottom. They're made of thin plastic, which would be crushed in no time. And if those millions of balls were made of some pressure-resistant material, expensive enough to make another Titanic though, they'd still not do the trick. Ping-pong balls are small, so most of them would immediately slip through the holes in the ship, while the remaining ones wouldn't nearly be enough to raise a 50,000-ton ship to the surface. Now, the only real attempt to raise the Titanic was made in 1996, and it failed dramatically. The expedition was more symbolical than anything else, though, because they didn't try to lift the entire ship, but only a part of its hull, weighing about 21 tons. It would still have been the largest piece to see the sunlight again, if the operation had succeeded, that is. Four large bags filled with diesel fuel were lowered to the bottom of the ocean and attached to the hull plate. Then, they were released, and the fuel bags started lifting the piece on their own. 
the plate rose to about 200 feet below the surface when the weather got rough. The expedition members decided to tow the part to calmer waters some 80 miles away. And even if something had gone wrong, they would have been able to raise the hull plate easier from there. Still, long before they reached the towing destination, half of the plate broke off and sank to the bottom again. Two of the lifting bags seemed to have broken loose, letting the ship part go down. Despite there being an acoustic beeper installed on the hull plate, whose battery would have lasted for two years, no other attempts were made to recover the lost part. But the main reason why raising the Titanic is practically impossible is its level of deterioration. After more than a century deep underwater, the ship rusted all over and became brittle. It also doesn't help that it broke into two while sinking. The water rushed inside in cascades, crushing everything that was on board. The current condition of the Titanic leaves no doubt any attempt to lift it to the surface in one piece will fail, making the ship crumble to dust halfway up at most. Being the largest maritime catastrophe in the modern history, the sinking of the Titanic has grown a number of myths, legends, and wild speculations around it. For example, some say the survivors on the lifeboats were attacked by sharks. Strictly speaking, this could have happened in reality. Great white sharks, the largest predators of the ocean, do inhabit the North Atlantic and sometimes roam the icy waters. But the population of the great whites had been in decline for decades at the time of the shipwreck. So if one did happen to be around the site on April 14, 1912, it was alone and probably scared of all the commotion. The water was filled with the noise of the twisting metal, frantic people trying to get into the lifeboats, and flipping oars of those same boats. Despite being a fearsome hunter, it wouldn't stay long enough to find out what was causing such a ruckus. The only shark the survivors could actually have caught sight of was the Greenland shark. This beast lurks the chilly waters of the Arctic, and it loves the cold. So it could have been attracted by the smells of the Titanic's kitchen sinking to the bottom. But the Greenland shark is a slow-living and serene creature that prefers to wait for its prey to fall into its head rather than actively hunting it down. Also, it's a deep dweller meaning that even if it had appeared at the site, nobody would have seen it anyway. It would have simply stayed too deep underwater and out of trouble. Another theory suggests the Titanic was one of the unfortunate visitors of the notorious Bermuda Triangle. That area of the Atlantic Ocean is shrouded in even more mystery than the Titanic crash itself. Numerous ships, aircraft, and even submarines disappeared without a trace there. And some say that ghost ships come back there from time to time, roaming the seas without the crew and purpose. While interesting to speculate, this theory doesn't stand a chance. The Titanic never came even close to the Bermuda Triangle. The liner sank about 400 miles south of Newfoundland, which puts it more than twice as far to the north from Bermuda, the northernmost point of the infamous area. Some even venture as far as to say that the Kraken, a fantastical beast of the depths, actually attacked and sank the Titanic. There is scientific evidence that giant squids do exist, and the largest species could have even been big enough to sink small vessels in the ancient times. But no squid found so far has been as large as to be able to do any damage to such a titanic ship as, well, the Titanic. Also, giant squids grow so large because of the deep sea gigantism, the phenomenon that only occurs at great depths. And the term explains it all. Giant squids love lurking in the deep and rarely, if ever, come up to the surface. There are several explanations to it, one of which is cold temperature. The colder it is, the slower the metabolic rate of organisms dwelling in such a place is. This means they can eat all they want and then store that food for later, slowly metabolizing it, sometimes for years on end. This lets the creatures of the depths continually grow in size even without any food handy. They also age more slowly, 
meaning their lifespan can reach hundreds of years. Greenland sharks, for example, are known to live at least up to 400 years. Lack of food deep underwater makes deep-dwelling creatures grow large, too. Increased body size helps them store and distribute food and energy better. Some can gorge on the food they've managed to find, distend their bellies so much that they can hardly move around, and then slowly drift, feeling no hunger at all. Smaller bodies would mean less time for such storage, and when the food is scarce, you can't hunt often. It also helps that there are much fewer predators down below. Studies have shown that blue whales, the biggest animals on the planet that ever existed, managed to evolve to be so large mainly because they had no natural enemies for millions of years. When you have no one to restrict your growth, you just can't help yourself. The deeper it is, the more dissolved oxygen there is to be found, and that influences the size of creatures down below as well. Larger creatures find it easier to inhale the oxygen dissolved in the water. That said, smaller critters will probably have a hard time breathing at great depths. So that would explain why the deeper you go, the larger the squids are, and also why one of these invertebrates armed with tentacles couldn't have sunk the Titanic. Tabloids exploited the unsinkable liner story too, of course. One of the more fantastical developments was that some survivors of the crash who hadn't been found at the wreck site were actually time-traveling. There were surprisingly detailed stories about the people found 80 years after the catastrophe, stranded in the waters of the Bermuda Triangle. Of course, they didn't know where or when they were and how they got there, but they willingly gave interviews as if they really existed. There's even a book about one such survivor who was found on a lifeboat in the Bermuda Triangle in 1990. It follows the fictional story of a woman as if she finds herself in a world completely different from her own and tries to find her place in it. The stories of actual Titanic survivors are no less exciting, though. The most incredible one is probably the story of Violet Jessup, who is dubbed Miss Unsinkable. Her saga had begun years before the Titanic accident and continued long after it. Violet was the oldest of the nine children in her family, and so it was her duty to provide for her younger siblings in case anything happened to their parents. And one day, when her mother fell sick, she was forced to perform that duty. The mother was a stewardess at sea, so Violet decided to follow her example. In 1910, she landed a job on the most luxurious liner of the time, the Royal Mail Ship Olympic. The first year went by calmly, and Violet was content with her job. Hard work on the ship's deck from morning to night didn't frighten her. She liked talking to people and enjoyed the beautiful views of the Atlantic. So on September 20th, 1911, Violet worked on the deck as usual. The sea was calm and the weather was excellent. Nothing boded ill. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The ship was sailing through the Solent Strait, which separates the Isle of Wight from the British mainland. At this moment, the British military cruiser Hawk appeared ahead. It should have passed by the Olympic, but something went wrong. The ships went straight at each other. The Olympic's captain tried to maneuver to avoid a collision, but failed. The Hawk's bow was designed specifically to ram other ships. In that time, it rammed the Olympic. Boom! The liner shuddered and people screamed in panic. A huge hole appeared in the liner's starboard. Violet fell on the deck from the force of the blow. Luckily, both ships stayed afloat, and nobody got hurt. This time, Fortune was on Violet's side. 
She returned to land and continued looking for other job opportunities, ignoring her bad experience with the Olympic. She got several other jobs until April of 1912. As you may have guessed, Violet got one on the Titanic, the best and most luxurious ship of the time, and one of the two sister ships of the Olympic. Interestingly, she didn't want to work on it at first, but her friends persuaded her. It was considered a dream job after all. The cruise it was about to take gathered dozens of rich and famous people, and the pay was really good. She went aboard the Titanic on April 10th, knowing nothing of what was to come about in just four days. When the disaster struck, Violet was resting in her cabin and falling asleep already. The jolt of the collision almost tore her from her bed. Then, she was immediately called to the upper deck. There was no panic on board. No one believed that the unsinkable ship could actually sink, even as the five watertight compartments were filled with water, bringing the Titanic to its imminent doom. Everybody was calm and reserved. Violet happened to be one of the first to get into a lifeboat. She was ordered to get inside to show others it was perfectly safe. So when she stepped on board the boat, she was followed by a small crowd. She witnessed the slow demise of the unsinkable liner from the lifeboat and safely held out, along with the rest of the passengers who came with her, until the Carpathia came three hours later to pick them up. When Violet got to New York to board the rescue ship, she went against all odds yet again, proving her spirit was adamant. She continued working at sea, and four years later, fate caught up with her once more. She got a job on the Britannic, a modernized steam liner adapted as a hospital ship in the Aegean Sea. And yes, it was the third sister to the Olympic in the Titanic. On November 21st, the ship took a route that it had already sailed several times, but on that particular day, it was out of luck. The Britannic hit an underwater mine. Violet managed to survive the third shipwreck in her life. The explosion shook the entire vessel, throwing her off her feet, and the huge Britannic began to sink quickly. It took less than an hour for the ship to go down completely. Violet didn't have time to board a lifeboat, so she jumped overboard into the cold water. There, she swam to the closest lifeboat and got on board. But the ship's propellers were still working. They were spinning in the water and pulling the boat toward them. Violet saw the danger and jumped off the boat in time to escape the propellers, but the treacherous tug was on her the same moment. Already in the water, she was pulled under the ship's keel and hit her head. The only thing that saved her from losing consciousness and probably her life was her thick hair. In the end, Violet got away from the engine and was picked up by another boat. Three disasters that Violet managed to survive didn't stop her. She continued to work on cruise liners until 1950. She cruised the world twice on a luxury liner, Belgaland. Fortunately, the string of mishaps ended, and Violet Jessup was never shipwrecked again. In 1950, she moved to Great Ashfield in Suffolk County. She'd worked at sea for almost 42 years. Content with her career, she settled in a large cottage built in the 16th century. Still, the fame of her three miraculous survivals got into the world, and she was aptly dubbed Miss Unsinkable. Another bold Titanic survivor who gained world fame was Richard Norris Williams, a tennis legend. At the time, he was a 21-year-old aspiring tennis player from Switzerland and a prospective student at Harvard. In 1912, he and his father booked a trip aboard the Titanic to go to the U.S., where he would study history and geology. They took the train from Geneva to head to Charbourg, France, where they would board the liner. On the way, Williams noticed a familiar face in one of the cars. It was another well-respected tennis player, Carl Baer. At the time, they only nodded at each other in recognition, not realizing that fate was about to bind them in a most incredible way. Baer was 26 years old at the time. 
He'd already become famous in the tennis world for representing the United States in the 1907 Davis Cup final. But Bear was boarding the Titanic for a more personal reason than Williams. He'd fallen in love with his sister's friend, Helen Newsom, and was planning to marry her. But it wasn't that easy. Her family wasn't in favor of their relationship at all. Zero. Helen was from Ohio, and her parents had decided to take her on a grand European trip to separate the couple. But as soon as Bear learned about it, he rearranged his business schedule and joined Helen. After the European adventure was over, all of them were going to return to America together on the unsinkable ship. But Bear and Williams were first-class passengers and got accommodations on the sea deck, or shelter deck. They didn't talk much, though, minding each their own business. When the iceberg struck, people were hastily instructed to get into the lifeboats. Carl Bear wasn't going to leave the side of his love, Miss Newsom. So he went with her and her parents to lifeboat number five. That was when the fate of the two tennis players started intertwining. Back then, evacuation priority rules dictated that women and children had to go first. Men were to occupy the last lifeboats when all the rest of the passengers had been dispatched onto open water. Bear and his companions met Bruce Ismay on the deck, who was the managing director of White Star Line, the company that owned the Titanic. As soon as he saw them, he advised everyone to get into a lifeboat. This way, Bear, who seemed like a strong guy, could row the boat away with the rest of the gentlemen. Richard Williams had a more difficult evening, though. He and his father tried to guide as many passengers as they could into the lifeboats. The ship had already began sinking, and most of the boats weren't leveled, so the men had to stand on the edge and help the passengers in. After lowering the last boat into the ocean, they started making their way to the bridge for further directions. But at some point, while they were on deck and out in the open, one of the giant funnels came off, falling right on Williams and his father's heads. Desperately leaping out of the way, Williams plunged into the icy cold water. The funnel hit the water nearby, pushing him out further. He eventually found himself clinging onto one of the lifeboats. He spent some time like this, out of breath and holding on for dear life. Finally, gathering the last of his strength, Williams managed to climb inside. There was water in the boat that reached his knees. He was wearing a thick fur coat and shoes, which he removed as soon as he got out of the water. He was joined by a few other passengers as unfortunate as himself. They had to stay in the freezing cold for a few hours until they were finally taken into another lifeboat, which took them to Carpathia. Because they'd been sitting knee-deep in frigid water for so long, all the survivors from that lifeboat needed medical care immediately. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When the Carpathia's doctor looked at William's legs, he was shocked. They were severely frostbitten. The only way the doctor saw to save his life was to amputate both legs from the knees down. But Williams refused. Coincidentally, Carl Bear was on board as well. Luckily, he was okay. He was helping the other survivors. That was when the two soon-to-be tennis legends finally met. Williams said that Bear had shown him great kindness. He felt more encouraged, so he began taking his first steps on the Carpathia's deck. He didn't want his tennis career to be cut short, so fighting through the anguish, he got up every two hours and walked around to get some circulation going in his legs. As time went by, 
So did William's health condition. After they arrived in New York, hmm. he took some time off to recover completely. Six weeks later, he was back playing tennis, winning the U.S. championship in mixed doubles the same year. When the tournaments ended, he finally entered yeah. Harvard, and his tennis career thrived. Yeah. In 1914 and 1916, he became the United States singles champion, and in 1924, he won an Olympic gold medal in mixed doubles. Managing to achieve it, even with a sprained ankle, he became so well-known throughout the years, the media started writing articles about his athletic achievements all around the world. The first time Bear and Williams would face each other in a match was in 1912, not long after their shared experience on the Titanic. Bear was the champion of that game, and it was Williams' first defeat in America. After that match, he kept training, and two years later at the rematch, Williams would turn the tables and become the champion. After he defeated Bear in the quarterfinals, Williams went on to take his title for the first time ever. He became one of the best tennis players of his time, winning the Davis Cup five times, the Wimbledon doubles, and the U.S. Nationals twice. Both of these legends were given a place in the International Tennis Hall of Fame. But while tennis was a huge part of both men's lives, it wasn't the only success they found. After their sports careers were over, they both became remarkable financers. Bear gave up his career as a lawyer and became interested in banking. Williams followed a similar path. He became an investment banker and was the president of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Many years after the incident, two books came out sharing the two men's stories on the Titanic. Nobody knew about their encounters or their friendship. One of the most heroic persons on board the Titanic was Margaret Brown, popularly known as the unsinkable Molly Brown. She was an American socialist and philanthropist, and at the beginning of 1912, she was traveling in France with John Jacob Astor IV, who had also happened to get on board the Titanic. She hadn't even intended to be on that ship, but while in Paris, Margaret got word that her eldest grandchild was seriously ill in Denver. That made her buy a ticket to the first liner to go to the U.S., which just happened to be the Titanic. She was brought there as a first-class passenger from Cherbourg, France. While many passengers were still refusing to believe the unsinkable ship could actually go down, Margaret was among the few who saw the situation as it was, a terrible disaster. She was helping the crew by guiding the passengers to lifeboats and assisting them in getting aboard. The crew urged her to get in as well, but she adamantly refused and continued ushering others to safety. Despite many of the lifeboats being less than fully loaded, it was in part thanks to Margaret Brown that lots of lives were saved that night. In the end, the crew managed to persuade her to get into a boat as well, and it was lowered onto the chilly waters of the North Atlantic along with 27 other people. She and her fellow survivors witnessed the sinking of the Titanic from the boat, but she was the only one to take an oar herself and start urging the rest of the people on board to go back and find more survivors. Robert Hickens, the quartermaster on the Titanic, fervently opposed that decision. He was afraid that, if they went closer to the ship, their boat might be caught in a downwards current created by the sinking liner. Another reason was that people in the water might rush the boat and capsize it in their panic. Margaret was furious. She looked Hickens in the eye and told him she would throw him overboard if they didn't go back to help people in need. However, it remains unknown whether she managed to persuade him or not in the end. Already on board the RMS Carpathia, Margaret continued her good effort and organized a committee with the surviving first-class passengers. The purpose was to make sure second- and third-class survivors had all the basic things they needed, and she herself provided people with counseling, 
Her knowledge of foreign languages helped her talk to passengers who spoke little English, and she coordinated the effort to provide blankets and basic supplies to the survivors. Later, many people would call her name with gratitude for helping them in the hardest of times. And even after the Carpathia safely delivered the surviving passengers of the Titanic to New York, Margaret went on and up to become one of the most famous women leaders in America of the 20th century. She single-handedly solved a major conflict in Colorado and then almost became a U.S. Senator, but eventually cut her campaign short to help where help was due. In her later years, she decided to lead a more peaceful life and became an actress. And in 1932, she went peacefully in her sleep. There was also a pretty exotic case of a rescue thanks to a walking stick. In July 2019, that item was sold at an auction house in Rhode Island. According to witnesses and documents, that walking stick saved a whole group of 27 Titanic passengers on a lifeboat. And all thanks to its unique feature, a built-in light. In the spring of 1912, 55-year-old Ella White was traveling around Europe with her good friend Marie Grice Young, a 36-year-old piano teacher. Different things can happen while you're out on an adventure. Things like injuring your foot. That was exactly what happened to Miss White at some point during her travels abroad. Due to this mishap, she had to get herself a walking aid. She decided to get a fancy model with a battery-illuminated crown. A decision that would save her life just a month later. When their European vacation was over, Miss White and Miss Young got themselves first-class tickets for the RMS Titanic and headed home to New York on April 10, 1912. Miss White was also traveling with a mate, a servant, and some chickens she and her friend had purchased in France. Despite the lavish commodities available to first-class passengers, Ella White and Marie Young didn't leave their cabin much, preferring the company of each other. And the first time Miss White left her accommodation for longer than a time needed for dinner was on the night of April 14th, when the Titanic shook from the collision. Together with her little personal crew, she left the comfort of her luxurious suite and came to the upper deck. A crowd had already gathered there, waiting for explanations and instructions. Moments later, Captain Edward Smith announced it was time to put on life jackets and get into the lifeboats. There was no panic, and people were filing into the boats pretty calmly, only dissatisfied with the inconvenience. Lifeboat number eight, carrying Miss White, her maid, and Miss Young, was among the first to set off. When they got far enough away from the ship, the disaster became apparent. The Titanic was crumbling to pieces right before their incredulous eyes. Everyone now realized they had to fend for themselves. The night was dark, calm, and moonless, with the waves softly lapping against the lifeboat's boards. For a time, the survivors just sat and watched the unsinkable liner slowly go down into the watery abyss. But then, they knew they had to do something. Rowing in a random direction wasn't an option, so they needed light to guide their way. With horror, the passengers realized that the lamps installed into the bow of their lifeboat weren't nearly enough to see through the deep and inky night. It was then that Miss White remembered her cane. It had a built-in flashlight, perfect for the purpose and more powerful than the boat's lamps. So the 27 survivors in lifeboat number eight now needed to row for their lives. Miss White with her illuminated walking stick became their signal woman. It was dark, bitterly cold, and the waters surrounding them were filled with debris. But they kept going, not knowing how far help was from them. Then, tired and freezing cold, the lifeboat's passengers saw a light somewhere in the distance. Could it be a ship coming to their rescue? Ella White kept waving that cane like the only light of hope they still had. After 45 minutes of going, passengers aboard lifeboat number eight decided to turn around to see if they could save more people. After all, 
their boat being one of the first ones launched, only had 27 people in it, yet it could easily hold twice as many. Sadly, despite the heroism of this decision, when they returned, there was no ship to rescue people from. The Titanic had already gone into the depths of the Atlantic Ocean. Now they had to worry about their own survival. Miss White still serving as their guide and beacon, the passengers rode towards the light that they'd seen earlier. It turned out to be the RMS Carpathia indeed. It picked them up, shivering with cold and exhausted to their limit at 7.30 a.m. on April 15th. The brave lady who lit the way for the lifeboat would live to the age of 85, passing in 1942. The unique cane stayed in the family, treasured as an artifact of great worth. The person who eventually sold it at an auction was Brad Williams, a great-grandnephew of Miss White's. He received the walking stick from his mother. For years, it had been kept in his umbrella stand among 35 other canes in his collection. But in the end, he decided this one needed a better home where it could be honored. While a lot has been said about the legendary cruise liner and the survivors of its crash, there's another character of these events that received unfairly little attention, the iceberg itself. But the story of that thing is certainly worth noting too. It all began in January of 1912. A giant chunk of ice broke off of a glacier in southwest Greenland. The ice was made up of the snow that had fallen about 100,000 years before the event. That was the time when mammoths were still roaming the planet. The iceberg started its journey. It was a huge thing, more than 1,700 feet long. It weighed around 75 million tons. And then, it somehow floated much further to the south than the other bergs did. Out of 15,000 to 30,000 icebergs that drift away from Greenland's glaciers, only 1% ever make it all the way to the Atlantic. Others either melt down or get stuck in shallow waters along the way. This iceberg also melted after being in the open for so long, but it still weighed an impressive one and a half million tons. It's almost twice as much as the Golden Gate Bridge. The iceberg's top part was towering over the surface of the ocean for more than 100 feet. And still, if you'd noticed it floating next to your ocean liner, it would have looked harmless. But only at first glance. The largest part of any iceberg is always hidden under the surface. A mere one-tenth is normally visible above the water, and the berg we're talking about wasn't an exception. That was why, on the night of April 14th, the lookouts in the Titanic's crow's nest couldn't see the ice rock in the distance. There was no moonlight, and even if there was, it wouldn't reflect well off the irregular surface of the berg. The mighty ship crashed into the iceberg with its starboard, leaving frightening gashes in its hull, through which ocean water started flooding into the watertight compartments. One, two, Five. Five compartments were filled with water, sealing the Titanic's fate. It had been built to withstand the flooding of only four, and the rest is history. But not for the iceberg. On April 15th, the German ocean liner SS Prinz Adelbert was sailing through the North Atlantic. It was traveling a few miles away from the place where the Titanic had sunk several hours before. The German ship's chief steward, who hadn't learned about the disaster yet, saw an iceberg. What drew his attention was a fairly large stake of red paint going along the iceberg's base. Surprised, the man took a photo of his discovery. He thought the paint meant a ship hit the iceberg during the past 12 hours. The next person who saw the infamous chunk of ice and took its photo was the captain of a vessel used to lay deep-sea telecommunications cables. The ship was sent out to help in the area where the Titanic had sunk. The captain later claimed the iceberg he'd seen had been the only one in the area. Plus the red paint, it wasn't difficult to connect the dots. In the end, one of the photos made that day was sold at auction in 2015, and the final bid was more than $32,000.
And yet, there's at least one person who stated that there was no iceberg at all, and the Titanic sank because of some mysterious explosion. 25-year-old American publicist Vaginok Burat was traveling on board the legendary liner to deliver some books he'd published together with his father to the U.S. He was sharing his cabin with three other men, with one of whom Vaginok quickly became friends. On the night of April 14th, the men were fast asleep when something that sounded like a big explosion woke them up. Bam! And two of them were thrown from their bunks by a mighty push. The men gathered themselves, helped each other, and went out to see what was going on. They soon found out the crew were ushering women and children aboard the lifeboats. The ship was sinking. Vaginok and his friends soon realized that they had no other choice but to stay on the ship and go down with it, or try their luck and jump overboard for a chance at rescue. Without much hesitation, they did it. Vaginok only taking his passport and money in a little bag hanging on a string around his neck. The friends got immediately separated by a wave, and the publicist found himself stranded in the water. He lost his life vest and was fighting the frigid sea as much as he could when he bumped into a lifeboat. Unfortunately, it was already overcrowded, and the people didn't let him in despite his pleas. He was getting numb, fast, and eventually lost consciousness. That might have been the end of his story, but he woke up on board of another ship, which turned out to be the Carpathia. The next morning, the ship made it to New York. Still feeling awful after his ordeal, Vaginok was taken to a hospital. Twelve days later, a woman came into the room and all she could say through tears was, Oh, my dear boy! She turned out to be the person who saved Vaginok. Mrs. Astor was in her 50s, and she told the young man that the lifeboat he tried to get into didn't actually leave without him. Mrs. Astor told the sailors that the young man was her son, and she wouldn't let them go without him since she'd already lost her husband on the Titanic. It turned out she kept Vaginok's passport and money, and invited him to visit her when he felt better. After he recovered, the writer was reunited with his family in Boston. He even received all the books he planned to sell in America, since they were traveling on a different ship. Vaginok lived a long life, and as a great storyteller, he shared what happened to him many times. Interestingly, he never mentioned an iceberg hitting the Titanic, and always spoke about an explosion. If what he said was true, something must have caused that boom. It could have been a fire, and quite a lot of people actually believe that theory, saying that coal was burning in the ship's hull. That fire would have started long before the ship's departure, and there was simply no way to put it out. Titanic must have left with that fire still going, and the flames weakened the hull so much, it couldn't survive its meeting with an iceberg. Supporters of this theory use pictures of the Titanic leaving the docks for evidence, pointing to a huge dark mark on the hull. Even if that's true though, it's still not obvious whether the fire led to an explosion, and supporters of this theory don't deny there was an iceberg. The real truth, however, it might be that we'll never find it out.